Swimming with the Blowfish, Foodie, Healing, and One Hell of a Ride. That's a great title. It's the book by Jim Sonnefeld. Everyone calls him Sony, the drummer for Hootie and the Blowfish, a songwriter, and now also a solo artist. Now, I've known Sony for more than 25 years. Hootie and the ESPN squad were closely connected in the 90s. To quote his bandmate, Darius Rucker, in the book's foreword, Sony has lived a life that is rife with fun and pain, light and darkness, but always with an amazing amount of love. We talk about all kinds of things. How soccer dreams led him to South Carolina, where he connected with Hootie. That's an incredible story that started with a devastating fire. Sony tells rock and roll tales from the early struggles to selling more than 10 million records and winning two Grammys. We have plenty of laughs, but Sony also really opens up about his addiction and recovery and his faith. Our conversation is honest, authentic, and inspiring. Well, Sony, it's awesome to reconnect with you after more than a couple of decades. Podcasts can serve that purpose, too. And it's great to see your, your smiling, bald-headed face. And uh, we've got a lot to talk about, a lot of ground to cover. So thanks for coming on. So glad to uh, reconnect. And, and it's a funny world that way. But, uh, you know, then you look up and you're maybe uh, a little older, but we have great memories. We hope wiser, too. Yeah, well... You're a very funny guy. There is the funny, there is the heavy, and there's everything in between to cover. But first off, I want to start with a decision that you made when you're young. And so often, our lives, the course of them is changed by a decision that is, to many others, ill-advised, a long shot. And you're a young soccer player from the Midwest, and you decide that you're good enough to go down to South Carolina and walk on to a very elite soccer program against the odds and just by going to that school and that state and following that path, it seems like so many other things in your life, your music career, the loves of your life, all of that came from that one decision to jump in a car with your brother and drive from Illinois to South Carolina to try to make the soccer team. Yeah, well, it, it, it shows I am nothing if not a host of human uh, contradictions in my life. Uh, many before that decision and many more after. But that was one where I sort of followed a gut instinct, which I have not always done, and said, I think I can do this thing. I, I, I've I played uh, amongst all state players in Illinois, and there were many. Uh, I wasn't an all state player uh, and in that award. And I looked at the rosters in the Southeast where there were some big teams like NC State, Clemson, and, and South Carolina was on the rise. And I thought, that's that's the place. I want to do something different. I want to get out of the cold, and I want to try it. I, honestly, I you know maybe the best plans when they work are the ones that don't have a backup because they look very courageous and brave. I didn't have a backup besides being a student, which would never have suited me enough compared to soccer, which had drawn me my whole life. So. I, I had a little roster, a picture back in the 80s, and it was the, the team, the South Carolina team from the previous year. And I, I had X'd out, okay, he's a senior, he's graduating, he's leaving, oh, he's transferred. And I had like it narrowed it down to these guys and I saw where they were from and what their stats were. I had dreamed up this dream based on a piece of paper and a promise from our coach to get a tryout, a fair tryout. It was thinly advised, but, you know, I again, one of those things that looks pretty cool when you achieve it, I would have probably looked like it wasn't very well thought out if I had not achieved it. 
I don't know, man. Looking at the looking at the roster and calculating what your chances were—that's that's more than most walk-ons do. But I love the fact that you said you followed your gut, your instinct, and to do that, you got to clear out the static. And I know later in your life it was harder to clear out the static and listen to your gut. And and, and that's the same thing for all of us, whether it's static from within or static around us. Clearing that away and making this choice that that ended up working out great uh, and led to so many other things. Although I, your soccer career, you, you write in your book about. Um, the ups and downs within that career, which kind of mirrors some of the ups and downs in your larger life. What, what does the number 1.1 signify for in that part of your life? And we're not talking about blood alcohol content at this point. That's later. 1.1. It probably would. It sounds like it was around my grade point average my freshman year. And <laughs> that was the other part that was not well thought out was, oh, college is to get a degree. It's not to run around a soccer field. I, I hadn't thought much about the book's and, and the time it would take to, to get proper grades to be a student athlete. So if that's what you're talking about, that 1.1, <laughs> that's what I remember. You copped to that in your book, and it's like almost a Blutarski GPA. But the, the happy thing is you, you came back and you ended up uh, turning that around, turning your career around. But, but music at this point, you, you write you weren't in a band until you're 21, which is really late for a lot of people that, that listeners here playing music generally they were in bands from a much younger age. I know you were drumming from a younger age, but you, you finally get you know, music, passion, kind of begins to take more charge. And, and although you did want to go to a Grateful Dead show, I think you said it was, it was two days after, uh, a, before a soccer game, and all you wanted to do was drop acid and go to a Dead show and not play soccer, but, but that, thankfully that, that, that plan didn't end up happening. <laughs> the wiser voices prevailed, thankfully. <laughs> but but knocking around, you know, in bands, just you know, playing for the fun of it, playing for the love of music. Talk about that because that's a part of the development of so many musicians. And when you did get into a band you know, back in Columbia, Tootie and the Jones was one of the early bands, right? Tootie and the Jones, Tootie and the Blowfish. I don't know what the odds are of going between two bands with those names. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. Uh, I was not blessed with uh, being in the. Uh, greatest band named bands it were uh, it was, uh, there are many bad dumb names but I had uh, the only hootie tootie that I ever gonna remember in life and you know part part of my journey was uh, like sports I had a period where I, you know I was born a drummer so I could drum on my own and I had that that is was in my blood from a young age and it was always going to be there but uh, it was picking up an acoustic guitar in college and then a piano and and having fun with it to say this is an interest of mine I'm under no pressure I'm not uh, you know travel I'm not being forced to do this I'm enjoying it and I'm growing and developing as I went that that was kind of an important part of my journey even for my sport of soccer because I played other sports and back in that era I don't think there was as much pressure on athletes at a young age to be in a system to be on a club to be signed in signed up and you got to play seven days a week and you can't play other sports music for me was that thing that was an interest that I needed time to develop and realize no one's putting this on me there's not a coach above me there's not a parent looking over my shoulder there's not an expectation music was this love in my heart that developed when I picked up a guitar and melodies came out and when I picked up a piano, I didn't pick up a piano, I guess I sat down in front of it technically and realized there's a beautiful thing that's connecting me to all the music I've listened to as a child. So 
I liked that I had that period of time to just enjoy something before it became serious. And maybe kids today, because I've raised a handful of student athletes, that's too much. We get them so serious, so early in their sport, in their singular lane, that it takes some of the joy away. And so music was never taken away from me as a joyful uh, interest. I'm thankful for that. Was it love of the process more than concern about fortune and fame that obviously you know came later in a different band? Was it just playing music brought you joy and you weren't trying to get somewhere with it? You were just trying to enjoy it? Yeah, I was, I was very much in the moment. I was training on the job. I was seeing the results uh, for, for making music is first in your own heart. You make a song, you're amused, you're uh, delighted by a rhyme you've come up with or that you sound a little bit like a good song that you've heard on the radio. You feel that little self-accomplishment, but then getting in front of uh, uh, people in bars at, at, at 21 for the first time to see the reaction, that was kind of cool. It was similar to sports and getting a round of applause, but it was also never competition. And I'm thankful that that music has never felt like a competition for me or my bandmates. It's we get to do it. We love doing it. Let's do it. You know, there was no we're beating them or we have to compete against some other band. We never looked at it that way. And there are bands, there are artists who do and take it rather seriously. We never had that. We knew we get to be on stage. This is fun. This is, you know, what we, what we were meant to do. So uh, sports was different that way. Music was just, wow, I, I, I'm coming up with melodies. You know, I'm starving. I can't pay rent. But those seem to be less of a worry than the joy we got on stage. Well, speaking of rent, you write in your book about one of those events in life that is horrible at the time, but creates an experience and growth. You lose, I guess, almost everything you have in a fire in your apartment building. And at that point, your parents had gotten divorced, I believe. You really had no home to go back to. You had nowhere to go and not much to your name. And it was through that experience that you got connected with Mark Bryan, the, the guitarist in Hootie, and, and you talk about your first connection with that band was an act of love and generosity on your behalf, which is a, a very cool origin story. Yeah, and honestly, I didn't connect that until I sat down to start writing the book and looking at the greater the picture from above, like, wait, the thing that connected us was, you know, I remember auditioning for the band, but really when I went back further, it was the fact that I was found myself homeless, and I went uh, instinctively to the place where I would go for some solace in college, uh, a bar, right? That's where you go to, to meet someone that you can tell their, your story to, or maybe get a, a free drink. And I was down and out. I wasn't feeling too great at that moment. But when I walked in, it was uh, a guy I knew from audio production class, Mark Bryan, on stage. And his act in the middle of his band's rock and roll show to stop the show, recognize me and know that there was a fire on campus and say, hold up, everybody, I want you to know well, there was a fire on campus. You've probably heard about it, but I'm going to take my sweaty Maryland ball cap off and pass it. And you're going to put money in it for my buddy, Sony, who's walking up to the stage right now. I thought, what kind of like outrageous love is this? It just felt good. Of course, I was uh, you know, happy to be in the moment and have 34 bucks stuffed in my pocket a few minutes later. But I thought a few months later, as I'm getting an audition for that band, which ends up being Hootie and the Blowfish, these are good guys. These aren't just uh, guys who are striving to get to the top of music. 
they're having fun on stage. They're willing to use their influence on that stage for good, uh, which I didn't forget. And when I joined the band, I felt I was probably in, in the right place uh, because of what they brought, uh, not just musically, but uh, in, in their hearts. Yeah, out of a real tragedy, that that is one of the coolest joining a band stories I've ever heard. Thir- 34 bucks on a condom you wrote. It was luckily not used. It was just still oh. in the wrapper and I probably not, never got to use it. Uh, but it was the the moment was not lost on me. And that was the fun of writing a book is I got to go back to some moments that were vague to me or I, I, I remember them. But when you sit down and you want to write a riveting story about a moment, you got to gotta think of what actually happened there. And the more I thought, the more I remembered, oh, my gosh, this was kind of a cool connection to to my new band. And I wouldn't find out for six months, but eventually I'd be in that band that was on stage. And yeah, what a crazy thing to be homeless and then find a home. It's one of the great stories in the book. You talk about kind of two worlds intersecting. The very first Hootie show you play, what were you doing earlier on that Saturday? Because I get a kick out of this. Well, I had a, a good work ethic and I had joined a couple bands. So I was, uh, you know, scrambling. I worked 40 hours at the university TV department, which, uh, and then I had two bands I was in. And part of my job at the USC was to cover the Sparky Woods football show. And I was an assistant to one of the cameramen running up and down the field, you know, every third down for the punt and just hustling. That's what a youthful guy like me is, was built to do at the time. And so I was in Athens, Georgia, watching the Gamecocks take one to uh, the uh, Bulldogs that day, which was pretty sweet. And I knew I had to drive my dumpy little car another couple hours to uh, meet my bandmates at a local small college where we had my first gig with the band at a fraternity mixer. And so it was a typical day that, you know, I didn't, yeah, I didn't ever worry about sleep or, or you know, any of that stuff. I, so I was happy to go work my butt off in Athens and then go to another town. And then I'm sure I got home at three in the morning, you know, pretty happy. Brother, that's no typical day. That's an amazing day. First of all, South Carolina winning between the hedges in Athens doesn't happen anymore, but that was a, in the late, late 80s. It was possible. And you do that, and then you go play your, your, your first gig with this band that's going to be ultra massive. That, that's a pretty damn good Saturday. Uh, it was. I mean, you can appreciate it when you're hustling around and you are happy and, and you're in shape and you're loving life and you're doing things you get that you love, a sport. I mean, suddenly a 12-hour day doesn't seem like that that much work. And I know I've, I've listened to, to your thoughts after long days and long games and you guys are on the way home. It's a delight to have to get to do something you love. And from that moment, I knew that I could be in this band. I could do this. You were four really hardworking dudes. It's uh, you weren't the only band that was playing 150 shows a year. But but talk about that grind. You're going around. You're writing some some songs that would later become globally famous and successful. But you're also playing covers. Um, REM was a band you guys looked up to. I'm, I'm a massive REM fan back from that same era, but you're playing REM, Police, Clash, Smithereens, you wrote in the book about covering all these different songs, working in your originals and kind of just doing what young, tireless musicians do, right? Going around in a van, playing almost every night. Yeah, I mean, I think we would have probably played 300 shows a year had we been able to 
uh, book them or get <laughs> clubs that were interested in us. We didn't know any better, but on the days that we weren't working, we were rehearsing and writing. We, you know, there's not a, a playbook for musicians. There's not, a, or how to be in a band. Uh, so we used our sort of intellect, a little bit of it, some some bravery to, to go long distances for just the hope, the chance of getting seen by a record company. We, uh, we had a good work ethic and we had a talented singer, which at the time we probably had no idea how iconic Darius's voice would become, but we only knew to work, you know, and when you're having fun, like you said, the 12 hour days don't matter, driving six hours to play a 40 minute set for $50 and a 12 pack didn't seem like a losing proposition. It felt like opportunity. And uh, so we always took opportunities and finally we got lined up with a manager, uh, Rusty Harmon, who you know, who was able to to get us a little organized, and he was great at that time for stirring up business, which we needed to do because uh, we were busy writing songs. We shouldn't be managing and booking, and uh, so we worked great together. And you know, slowly, surely, we got the attention of Atlantic Records, and and I've mentioned recently on, uh, to someone else that. You know, they said, you guys were so lucky to to do this. And I said, but luck, according to the sign in my uh, weightlifting room in high school, said luck is where preparation meets opportunity. So I felt like, you know, yeah, we were lucky. We, we had to work to put ourselves in a position to win. And then the opportunity came along. And maybe that is luck. I do want to talk about the the business part of the music business. But you, you mentioned songwriting and, and you end up. Um, being the main songwriter on, on Hold My Hand, a song that is, again, globally famous. You've got tens of thousands of people kind of singing along to this song eventually. And, and you talked about the process of writing a song. And for those of us that will, will never experience that, take us inside the head of a songwriter when things are sort of flowing and it, you, you, it's, it seems effortless. You, you say it's almost zen-like when the words and the chords are all kind of just coming together for something that ends up being you know, so massively popular. Yeah, it's, uh, again, I, I often parallel the mind of an athlete or the action of throwing a ball or receiving a ball and the action of, of trying to put together words and melodies and, and notes. When you catch yourself not having to think about it, that's when you're actually doing the thing uh, in a Zen-like fashion where in a sport, it's the guys that are in the zone. The zone means you're not thinking about all the details, it's just happening. And so the zone happened for me when I wrote Hold My Hand, of course. There were, it was propelling itself forward in a way that the melodies were coming. The idea that I had in my heart, I wanted people to know about was coming at the same time and the right chords were there. And man, it, it doesn't always happen that way. We can get so uh, overthinking in our heads. We complicate things, say, I wanna make this sentence the perfect sentence. Well, do you have to? <laughs> Or can you just say what you want to say? And hold my hand was me spontaneously saying something I had been feeling for years. I, I, I didn't like the heartache around me. I didn't like the uh, the oppression. I didn't like that people were voiceless and struggling. And that's exactly what I said in the song. So there were moments like that with Hootie, since we were all novice songwriters, that we didn't have to overthink it. We didn't know what a radio song sounded like. We'd never been on radio but we knew what was in our hearts. So we worked that sort of angle and eventually we got to radio. You wrote that 
that song, which is very hopeful and upbeat, and you wrote songs across the spectrum as a band, but a lot of them were very hopeful and upbeat, and, and you said that you wanted to help ease some of the ugliness and, and the hopelessness that you had witnessed and, and lift people up and erase hurt. Your band would get shit, I think, from people unfairly for trying to write happy songs, but, but, but you, know, you were seeing one thing, but sort of trying to, to write about a different side of the world. Yeah, and so when you're writing just from your heart and you're not interested, as we were not interested about image or what we, uh, the clothes we wore or what would people think about our music, there's also a chance to go deep in authenticity at that moment, which I think is really gives any song a personality. I don't care who you are, what genre you're in. If you can be authentic, you know, there's only one original me. There's only four of us original sort of, hootie guys that make up that the ingredients that are necessary and and so we were okay with being ourselves and yeah eventually we weren't cool grunge was we came out of the grunge era where it was the opposite of cool you wanted to sit wear something neat or be rebellious we weren't quite ever that you know we had heartache and we lived lives like everybody it's disappointing at times it's unfair at times but uh, you, you go through and our influences, I'll tell you, were all over the map. That was maybe the funniest part that, that I always uh, look back and go, we had Darius who, uh, you know, was raised by mainly his mom who sang gospel in church, but Darius liked Kiss. Darius liked Merle Haggard. Darius had all these weird interests. I was the same, you know, my first concert, Kiss and Judas Priest. I love hard rock. I loved ACDC, but I also love Barry Manilow. I also love the cheesy stuff. So by the time we get to what do the us four want to sound like, it could have gone any way in the <laughs> world. The fact that we were able to manage to sound like anything is sometimes surprising because, and then you add in Dean and Mark's influences, which were again, all over the place. I don't know how we ever landed where we <laughs> did, you know? That's what was cool about music in the nineties though. When you write about eventually a crack review of the, the debut album blows up and sells more than 10 million and you win a couple of Grammys and the people that presented you those two Grammys that night, speaking all over the spectrum, just shows that you know something was present in that era in music that is tougher to achieve now where everybody's so splintered and everybody's in lanes and silos. And you know, who, who passed those two Grammys to you uh, the night that you guys won them? Yeah, it was not Barry Manilow, but it was Kiss. <laughs> And, awesome. and, and, and their full makeup, which was insane because we didn't see it coming. We didn't, weren't even aware that was that they were going to be the, the guys giving a trophy. We didn't think we'd win it anyway. But and then Tupac. So we've got just a moment where you want to freeze yourself in time and say, what am I doing here? I get why they're there. But how in the world did we achieve uh, this this place? And, you know, like I said, you know, having uh, Kiss be my heroes growing up. Uh, musically and the imagery before they took their make off, makeup off um, to have Gene Simmons leaning over my shoulder, handing me a Grammy. was like, I almost, you know, peed myself. <laughs> I was just like, I don't know if it was joy, fear, or thought he might, I, I don't even know. Uh, but it's so cool to have different tastes. I mean, I, I was at a Kiss show in McNichols Arena, Denver, Colorado, an older friend got me into Kiss. I really wasn't into them. I was into a lot of other kinds of metal. And here I was, like first row of the balcony, leaning over, watching these guys on stage. And you know, 
there was sort of, I don't know, maybe a more open-mindedness, I think, to people, how they could, could dip in and out of really different kinds of music back then. That I, I don't know if it's harder now, maybe I'm just older, but it seems that the same kind of climate doesn't quite exist anymore as it did back in those days. Yeah, there, I, I don't think, I mean, there was some of it, but I don't think there was as much a need to declare that I, I am this music or I, this is what represents me. Surely there were niches, you know, kids that listen to hard rock or when new wave came around, that was a thing. And, or if you listen, dare listen to country, which I don't think any kids did back then, uh, it was not cool. It was what your granddaddy listened to on the farm or something. But uh, I, I, I tried to push to my kids, uh, you know, who are between 19, five kids between 19 and 25 to keep open-minded, you know, that the, it, we've shown them now that uh, through politics and all this uh, divisiveness that you have to declare what you are and that's your lane and and don't go into anybody else's lane and that's the guy you don't want to like because he's not in your lane. I, I don't like that BS and I've told my kids from a musical perspective that the more you keep your ears open, lower those walls of judgment, you're going to be gifted with so many different styles, whether it's jazz or uh, hip-hop or country. Don't set boundaries. Don't like think that just because you don't understand it today that it's not a great song or artistry or attempt at art open your mind I don't know how my mine was not always open I had some prejudices dance music is something I could never stand because I couldn't dance I was probably jealous <laughs> of all the guys that got to dance with the uh, scantily clad girls and I didn't like the digital feeling that new music was uh, rolling into but I got, I've gotten over a lot of those prejudices and because of that, I can listen to the music my kids listen to. I can go back and listen to my hard stuff. I can even listen to some modern country. Darius is one of my favorite country artists, but I don't appreciate all of it, but you know, open mind, man. I, I just love trying to teach that to my kids. Amen. Spread the word. There's still amazing music being made today uh, in all genres all types across the spectrum and, and very readily available unlike in the days when you guys were were scratching and clawing and trying to get a, a label to sign on you mentioned Atlantic Records yeah eventually they were your label but you you were I, I guess sort of deceived strung along before that and and you write in your book about the music business you know just being it's not your words it's mine a, a shitty place but you, you talk about deception greed backstabbing, ego. Why does it have to be that way? Music can, is such a beautiful thing, but the business surrounding it doesn't seem to be that very often. Yeah, it's, uh, and it's, a, it's not a great awakening. Here we are all as musicians and songwriters, we're, we're trying to get up. We would like to have a few more fans and a few more streams. That's what we're all trying to do and whether we can admit it or not, that's what we want. A little, little more reception to our art. And eventually you get up into an area where there, you know, there, it is a business and I, but it's a nasty business, right? I mean, David Crosby comes and talks to you guys. You've got a, a rock legend giving you some advice as you're just beginning to smash it with Hootie. And he, he, his words were, as you quoted in the book, the music business is a monstrous operation and an evil like shitstorm is what he said. I mean, this is what you're you're hearing from this icon as you guys kind of launch into this, and you, you've tasted some of that, but you're about to taste even more of it. Yeah, well, and his point was the one I took 
through our career and, and saved me when I would have just been going at saying I quit or this is BS. I don't like it. He saved me because he said, it's okay that there's the business. There has to be the business. So let's not try and pretend there's not a business because somebody's counting money. If there's money coming in, somebody's going to be counting it and somebody's going to be trying to steal it. So let's acknowledge there is a business, but let's acknowledge why we're sitting in a room together making a record with a budget from Atlantic Records is because of what it has done to your hearts. You know, you guys sit, we as musicians, we stay up late trying to configure chords and lyrics and it's all in our heart and it's all mushy. Just be willing to acknowledge these two things have to meet at some point if you want to have a music career, but be able to see that dissection that the business is a yucky thing because it's dollars and cents and your music is in your heart and don't let it get far away from that. There's a place where there will have to meet and hopefully you'll have an honest manager who can uh, guide you through that and an honest attorney like we've had both of those. But um, he was warning us that don't let them get diluted. And that's the, the problem is that some people do. They, they get screwed over in business or they're not wise in business or they don't want there to be business. So they say, screw it, I'm just gonna do art for art's sake. Well, that might last you, that might get you somewhere, but it's okay that there's a business in music, but it's, ugh, it's yucky. You don't wanna get it too sticky. But not just external, Sony. I mean, bands fall apart from the inside because success can create, you know, jealousy. You get huge amounts of money and fame involved. And you guys, I always admire when I was uh, hanging about a little bit on the periphery, how much love and respect and how unchanged you guys seem to be, at least from the outside, despite this massive success. You, you go on Letterman, Ed Sullivan Theater, the same place where the Beatles broke big. You talked about that, that Dave appearance being massive. You get on a private jet, go down and play a show in front of 35,000 in your home state. I mean, that's a, that's a snapshot in the early massive success of Hootie. And yet sometimes you guys just were navigating it like you're still back in the early days driving around in a van. Do you not find that remarkable that you kept it together? I mean, maybe it's that Crosby's words, uh, you know, seeped in enough to say, protect that good thing, but protect not only the music and the art you make, but the friendships there within a band, because those are the first that start showing cracks typically, because if your band is lucky enough to get big, believe me, the first thing that's going to be happening is there's going to people be people in this lead singer's ear telling him how great he is and that maybe he should dodge those other guys and do something better over here and he could make more. So that's the first possible things that are going to break down. And, and maybe Crosby was saying, you know, don't forget that either. Don't forget that there's a love there for four guys that have driven around in a van together, smelling each other's feet, sharing couches, chairs, hotel rooms, if we were lucky, uh, you know, protect that thing too. And remember that's valuable. And, and, and remembering what you've worked, how hard you've worked. If you get lucky enough to be on radio, finally, uh, remember that. And I think we did. I think we did a good job. Upbringing was super helpful. Our parents all along the way uh, made us believe or remember that you family is important. So the four of us 
were, you know, stepbrothers from another mother. We we were nothing short of brothers, the, the, the amount of time we spent together. So we treated each other as, as family. We treated our crew that we were eventually able to hire as family and our friends out on the road, you included, and you saw, as you mentioned, how we treated our backstage area. We protected that. That was very important to us. We didn't let some people just bust in there and start defiling it. We could defile it plenty good ourselves. <laughs> well, I mean, we'll get to the part of your life where or partying and alcohol sort of took control. Hootie was a party band though. The, the crowds were celebratory, having a tremendous time partying. You, you guys were, were frankly doing that too, um, which was not unique to your band in the world of rock and roll. Um, I don't know how I, speaking of backstage, I got dragged out on stage on my birthday and drank a, a birthday tequila shot with you guys as probably most of the crowds were, who the hell is this guy? Game day wasn't very big yet. And I, you, you know, I was just hanging out there. Who, who is that, that guy? Get him off there, get back to the music. But it, it was a fun moment for me. And that ended up, I think, that was the night I believe your, your manager, Rusty's brand new SUV ended up partially submerged not in a river, the water was flowing across the road as one of those Carolina flash floods that happens. And somehow I ended up behind the wheel and, I, and it, never, it never ran again, that vehicle, after that fateful night. I think Dan Patrick was in there. We might've been going to Charles Barkley's party. This was like a V Foundation event, I think. <laughs> it's all a little foggy, I have to admit. No, those are great, fun situations you're happy to have lived and lived through because they can go bad, believe me. And and yeah, that was another great night. We just loved the party. We just never really wanted that to end. So we ushered friend, new friends in and Chris Fowler on our stage. And yeah, why not? Well, partying was a part of your life way before, Hootie. In your book, which is, is very raw and very honest and, 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 and also very inspiring and a great show of strength in your part and resilience. But you, you said that alcohol was always a place of peace you when, when at first when you were a young person and and it brought euphoria when you were insecure and when you had doubts alcohol kind of at first kind of made them go away to talk about sort of your your early experiences with alcohol and how it became more and more a, a, a force uh, a dark force in your life well yeah it, it, it signified from age 14 some sort of uh, maybe a couple things uh, uh, that we're getting away with something. So I like that thrill seeking aspect of it that, hey, look at me, look at us. We're doing something illegal or unlawful and, and we're getting a good feeling and we're, we're stealing something from the universe in some way. So we like that deviant sort of aspect. But for me, over time, it, it became something and our society upholds this to a degree. It's, it means we're celebrating something, right? Maybe it's a hard work day, a hard work week. Maybe it's an accolade or an achievement, but in our society through ages, you know, to hold up that glass or the shot, even before our show is doing shots, it means we're having a success here in this moment. So that was fine through many years to have it represent that. And it was accurate, especially when we got big and we uh, had dreams that were being uh, experienced like we never thought they would be. At those times, it was a celebration. And my problem came is when things started going downhill, as our career naturally sort of uh, descended as the next new band with tighter jeans and cooler hair uh, took our place, I, I held on to the thing that represented celebration and success, which was the booze. And as we went downhill, 
think my bandmates were able to either accept or uh, um, sort of develop, and I wasn't. So I kept grabbing onto that thing that told me we're we're good, right? We're celebrating. We're at the we're still living, and we weren't. The truth was our our best years of record sales were obviously behind us. The the empty seats in the auditoriums were growing, and I was starting a family and probably a little nervous about that. And I, I didn't know what to do with it. So I held on and I was always the one to bring people out and say on our off night, let's go. The whole crew and the band were bowling or we're going out to this place. So let's go to a ball game. I, I never wanted that celebration to end. And so I became, you know, what was uh, recreational at some point in my life became habitual, which became medicinal, which ultimately became alcoholic. You said that you believe that alcohol helped you get more out of life. Usually it's the exact opposite people come to find out. But you, you, you joked about it. You're a very funny guy. So you, you make the jokes. You deflect it. You kid yourself that your bandmates, your loved ones, your people are not hip to what's going on. But eventually it becomes more and more obvious to more people and, and, and to you as well and the, and the people that you love the most that this was more than just something recreational. This wasn't about fun anymore. Yeah, it, it got dark. And the sad thing was, and this probably tells on my ism, my alcoholism a little bit, is that when I first found out that people were on to me, I had heard a few people that were thinking about intervening. Uh, when I realized that they were talking about me and, hey, we're worried he's hanging out with some at odd hours, he's hanging out with a different group of people, he's uh, prone to temper, and uh, it's usually re related to drugs or alcohol. When I found out that there were people around me that were thinking that way, I didn't do what a normal person might do, which is say, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe I need to look at this because it could hurt not only me, but my family or this organization. Instead, I went the other way. I said, oh my, oh my God, they're, they're onto me. I've got to hide this better. I've got to have some secrets. I got to hang out with people that are even further away that they can't see because I need to do the things I need to do, whether I'm putting it down my throat or up my nose or wherever that chemical was being inserted. And so I did the opposite and, and it would take me four darkening years to come to a, understand what that was. That was me in denial. It's me not listening to the truth, not being self-honest. These are basic life principles that as a guy in his late thirties was not accepting. And I, I chose the alcohol because it meant celebration. It meant we're okay. And even when it was just me alone in a room, I couldn't give that idea up. It finally, you know, I finally had to, but for the most part, everyone else seemed to develop into better, more mature thinking. And, and I didn't. You write in the book about the descent. You, you just said it was about a four-year period, and, and you do that in great detail, and it's very powerful. I would encourage people to, to read or listen to it. I enjoyed you reading your book because it's covered there. Just a, a couple of things that I, everybody wants to know, Sony, with someone who has um, a story like yours, you know, what, what was the low point? Where, where did the spiraling kind of hit you know, rock bottom, and you finally had to look yourself in the mirror and not punch the mirror, which I know you said you did a few times and punch some walls and, and sort of figure out, Hey, no one's going to come save me. I, I've got to do this myself and I've got to start now. Yeah. Well, desperation is a, 
interesting concept that I think is where I where I was my turning point. I got desperate enough after repeated repeated failures and disappointments and hurting people trying to deny it or uh, make it seem smaller than it was, hurting myself. Eventually, it is actually frustrating and uh, confusing to have to keep up this facade in my life of lying about where I was or how many drinks I had or who I was with. It becomes too much and I get desperate for peace. And I, I come to a place where I, I, I can't take it anymore. And I know that people at that point in their lives with addiction will seek other answers. And I'm thankful that I didn't think suicide was something I would shoot for because uh, I was frustrated enough that I didn't know what to do with myself. Um, and so I got one last intervention from a unlikely source, which was my four-year-old daughter at the time. And, you know, you get intervening intervent interventions from bandmates and loved ones. And you just look at them like, F you, you know, I got this, I'm under control. But when your four-year-old daughter says, you know, one morning, dad, you know, what are you doing? And she, she means it purely and sort of innocently, dad, you know, what are you doing sleeping out here in the, not in our house, in the studio you've built uh, and you're not inside with mom and, and my brother and having pancakes and watching the Mickey Mouse Club. What are you doing? And, and that pierces you so directly in your heart that you can't even give her some BS answer. I became desperate. I couldn't manage my way out of a conversation with a four-year-old because the truth was the answer to the question when she left and I was left with some idea of the universe or God and myself, I said, I don't know what I'm doing. And that was the first time I'd said, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not in control anymore. I don't like it. I don't know where to go. And as a 40 year old man with a inflated ego, I was burdened with what the hell am I going to do? And luckily I had one sort of scratch piece of paper that a guy had given me previously, a guy I used to party with who was willing to extend the offer to me, who he saw me declining rapidly. He said, you know, call me when, when you're ready. You know, big wink, wink there. Like, call me when you're ready to get some help. And I did. I, got, I found that little piece of paper and called that, that guy that morning. And that was the beginning of, you know, surrendering and at least saying, I don't, I don't uh, have enough to do this on my own. I need help. And uh, I, I didn't want to didn't want to have to do that because society was telling me I am successful. I have two Grammys. I have a house that I own. I have sports cars in my driveway and a family that looks happy. Why should I need to ask somebody else for help? It's a, it's an ego issue. It's a power trip. So I, I asked and I received. For so many people, you write about it being daunting because everything in your life that you had built was some way connected to alcohol. So to suddenly break away from that, that grip. And obviously it was going to be difficult. Um, you, you talk in the book about another moment where you, you found, this was a Tiger Woods wedding, I believe in the Caribbean. You, and after a, a bender, you, you found a note that apparently you had written to yourself, get help today. And it's something that obviously was written in a fog with a lack of clarity was a moment of clarity for you when you look back at that, and that, that's, that's powerful. You don't even remember writing the note, just, just finding it, huh? 
Well, your life, uh, I was getting wet brained, a term that is used when someone is either uh, in a nonstop, you know, besides sleep uh, situation with either drugs or alcohol or both uh, and not taking in enough uh, good nutrition uh, mentally and physically. I was getting a little wet. And so an example of that is what you just said, I, I, I'm writing myself a, a note late night, probably drunk and frustrated and, and foggy and not finding it later and not remembering exactly when I wrote it or what I knew what it meant. It meant I must have been in a real bad state that I don't remember, but I was desperate enough and had some ounce of desire to, to try and remember that this this hurts or this isn't great. So I could find this piece of paper later, maybe. And and yeah, I looked at that like, what is who is that or who am I even, you know, it's a, it's a distressing in some way. And I think that's one of the ingredients that leads to, like I said, the ultimate feeling of desperation. I don't know what to do. And this is just more evidence that I need someone to help me. In fast forwarding, I don't want to give the impression this was quick or easy. You, you do decide to go to an AA meeting, but you write that on the way to the AA meeting, you had a couple of drinks and a couple of lines of Coke which is not the textbook way to begin, Sony, uh, a career of sobriety, but I, I guess that was just sort of a last hurrah and then before you could kind of step into this new world. I'm only laughing because you're laughing at the screen in front of me. I know it's, it's not really to a lot of people funny at all, but I, I, I recognize that. No, I, I can look back after some time now and in writing the book, I was already in a place where I could look back and say, that looks really dumb to say, um, uh, you know, I've woken up and I've called a guy and I'm going to make this uh, sort of obligatory surrender in, in concept and in principle and try and find out what people do that are in my situation. And, you know, fear being a big driver of my life at that time, fear of people knowing who I really was, fear of people finding out where I'd been and the deviant things that I got into as the alcoholism progressed you know, fear is a big thing. And my fear, I think, honestly, in that moment was, what if I go to this group of people who are practicing these 12 steps and, and I decide I'm like them and I can't drink anymore? Well, that would mean last night was my last drink. I, I can't have that. I've got some Jägermeister in the fridge in the garage. I think I'll see what that tastes like. So, yeah, and I, I think I went to sort of confess to my buddies uh, that you guys will never believe where I'm going right now. Let's have a drink to, to this. And yeah, it's backwards ass thinking for sure. Again, evidence that what was my mind, what kind of shape was my mind in at that time to think that on my way to receive help, I'm going to do the exact thing that has gotten me in this terrible situation. It doesn't make sense to anyone that doesn't think uh, like the alcoholic and hearing laughter behind it doesn't make sense either. Uh, ironically, you know, I, I got in front of a group of people who were laughing and that's where I learned that, you know, once we heal in any aspect of life uh, and, and mental illness is uh, a hot topic now too, when there is healing, there can be laughter again. And I had, I had forfeited my laughter. I was too in too deep for too long and to get laughter back and to hear people expressing uh, gratitude in the form of uh, you know, poking fun at one of another and, and themselves was a great release for me. I thought, I think I am definitely in the right place because I would like to go back to life being fun and silly. 
There's so many layers to the story. Uh, among them, you write in the book about getting divorced to your wife, Debbie. Mark Bryan, your buddy and the guitarist and Hootie, has also gotten divorced, I believe, prior to your divorce. And his ex-wife, Laura, and then you guys fall in love. And that's, a, that's an interesting thing, whether or not you're, you're rock stars or, or, or old friends or not. Um, you do write about some awkwardness, some tension, and, and having to work through that as you sort of embrace a new love in your life. Yeah, I mean, did we miss a moment there for a reality TV show, Chris? I feel like we we probably just should have got the camera crew in the living room and said, let's roll. This thing is going to be huge. Well, it's kind of like the Brady Bunch eventually. We end up having five kids under one roof. So it's, it's but, uh, but no, I mean. You know, it's one of those things that it's as you might imagine, uh, you know, uh, two, two grown men and, you know, an ex-wife and, and now Laura, my new wife, trying to negotiate how to raise five kids together in some, in some ways. And uh, we all, you hear, we got to do this for the kids or let's put the kids first. But, you know, that's an easy word to, to say, but it's harder in practice to decide what everyone's new roles are. And for Mark and I, I think as friends and bandmates, we wanted to continue being bandmates. We all felt Hootie and the Blowfish is worth everything. Why should we stop our art and our ability to raise money for charities and, and do something we love? Why should we stop that? Because relational uh, difficulties are changes. So I think we never felt like the band would uh, fall apart, but we had to decide who we were for each other. You know, uh, it's one thing to do with ex-spouses. That is difficult. And, um, but as friends, I don't think a lot of people have to go through that. And Mark and I have had to negotiate those, uh, those roles. Well, who are we now? Okay, now you're stepfathering or uh, now we're living in different towns and we're trying to do school function and sports events and, you know, uh, driver's license and kid, like it's, it's a mess on some levels, unless everybody that's in there cooperates and says, oh, well, let's answer this question. What's the best thing for that kid at this moment? Is it for one of us to stand up as, you know, in this time to be the leader? Sometimes it is. Sometimes it meant I had to sit back and say, I'm just a stepdad. I, I got to sit back and let Mark be the dad. And you negotiate all those things in real time through the years. And then the next thing you know, kids are having girlfriends and boyfriends. And like I said, learning to drive cars and then going to college. And we're at a place now in hindsight that it's kind of beautiful. Uh, we all feel like we've um, accomplished a thing, you know, to, to raise kids up to certain points where they're out of the house and look back and say, man, I'm, that worked <laughs> somehow. That insanely crazy thing worked. And so... I think we both have a gratitude uh, for each other and for the band and the, the greater weirder Hootie family. That's beautifully put. I mean, it's an evolution process. Thank goodness, perhaps the kids' welfare was a factor and, and deci decisive one. You guys might have come to blows. It might have been a different situation if you didn't have the, the, the welfare of kids in there. But uh, it's awesome. I know it took time. It wasn't easy. But uh, you guys seem to be in a good place. And you know, back on the music front, I mean, Hootie is still together. You guys still play big shows. There was a, a, a massive tour in was it 2019, which is the 25th anniversary of Crack Review, the, the Monster album. And you guys do still come together for Hootie Fest and for, for amazing charity causes. And amidst Darius's monster solo country career, he is just 
uh, so there's still plenty of music and, and you still do see your bandmates, I guess, pretty regularly then. Yeah. You know, life develops and changes and our, our uh, we move and we move on, but there's always a understanding that we, we started this thing as a band for a damn good reason, because we liked making music and we liked each other. And the question became over the years, how can you sustain that when you grow in different ways and you have families and then the families become broken and then intertwined again. And then Darius's stardom in country is just another thing along the way that what do you do with these changes? And that's what it all ends up. The question that we get to keep answering or is that what do you do with change? It becomes a big theme. I go out and do a lot of speaking and corporate speaking now, and it's about adapting to change because change keeps happening. And, and it's a great question as, as we older men get into and maybe are more successful at doing is that you can't stop change. So you better figure out how you're going to adapt when you uh, have change that you didn't sign up for, maybe change that you caused, uh, maybe things you just can't even control because we want to live happy lives. We're here to, to laugh and smile and have some joy. And what do you do when you're handed uh, you know, cards that aren't great. So I, I've enjoyed learning just enough to put a microphone in front of my mouth and talk to people like I know what I'm doing. Uh, None of us know what we're doing. None of us really know what's going on and what we're doing. But, but I, I think you, you, you can make a convincing case that you've learned some things. And I think one of the powerful things about your message is that, okay, you, you, you keep alcohol at bay, Many people I'd humiliate would not say beat it, but you keep alcoholism at bay, but that doesn't solve all your problems, right? Because that was covering up some of the things that was numbing you to some of the things. I think it's very powerful in your book. You talk about, this is important for anybody confronting addiction that just getting past that will not fix everything. You, you had to do a lot of hard work, right? You, you wondered if you could write a song. You wondered if you could perform while sober because it had been so long since you'd been sober. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah, fear again, a lot of fear. What, how am I going to do that? Or all the things that I've been doing, do I have to stop doing them or do they become boring? What, what happens here? Because if you've centered everything around the party and the party has to dissolve, you're faced with some real questions. And, uh, you know, I was able to, the obsession for alcohol started lowering in correlation to me doing sort of a, a personal house cleaning, a personal inventory of, you know, really getting honest with what my thoughts and my ideas and my fears meant to be and, and how they drove me to bad outcomes. You know, honestly, our problems are all the same, Chris, right? We, we have fears and doubts and there's unfairness and, and we're self-centered sometimes and, and we're prideful. We all have the same problems. So when I started looking, I realized, yeah, I don't know how to drink successfully, but mainly my problems are just like everybody else's. I'm not that unique as I thought I was. But the, the thing was, I said, you want to see, uh, uh, you think my problems are bad, you ought to see my solutions. And, this is what I, and that really sums up <laughs> what I got to, which was like, I, I have the same problems as everybody. My solutions are really crap. I, and mostly for many years when they got bad, I drank because it temporarily eased them. But as anyone is developing, figure out what your solutions are. It's about how do you 
face these life things that are going to happen. People dying, people disappointing you, you disappointing them. How do you face and what are you going to use as a solution? Because we all have the same damn problems. Faith has become a very powerful part of your life. Um, your music is, is largely faith-based. People, You have a, a terrific EP out, Remember Tomorrow, which I enjoy listening to. And there's a song, Sony, called Unafraid. And, and one of the lines is, you want to fight the fear and live my life unafraid. And are you able to live it free of fear that those old demons might come back and, and try to take control? Or is there still, is that what you're trying to be unafraid of at this point in your life? Well, like was mentioned before, the moment that an athlete doesn't have to think about the technique or the moment the songwriter doesn't have to think in a complex way about a lyric, it just is flowing out. In a similar way, my life today is free of the obsession. I don't have to worry about the details of, oh, there's a bar down the street or there's a liquor store there or I'm hanging around people that I used to party with. I don't have to worry about those and I can be more in the moment as a result of having solved some of my solution difficulties. So I get to be free to a large degree. If my motivation is right, I can go anywhere I want. I can go to the concert where people are partying and going next level. I can go backstage uh, to shows where people are doing crazy things. I can be, be in a bar. I can do tailgating. Uh, and that's a result of, of being free. I'm, I've got a serenity that is higher. And unafraid means that I'm not afraid of going back there. There's a mention in a, a book that says we recoil from something, from alcohol, like a hot flame. Like, and I know today that to drink or to pick up a drug or a chemical is like, it would be like grabbing a hot flame. So I'm not too worried about uh, that hot flame anymore. I've got that much sense. I, the way I solve it is trying to share it with other guys who are, you know, um, trying to get in on this journey. And that helps me remember who I've been. It helps me remember what the solutions are. And Unafraid, a song I'm, I'm so happy to sing at all of my events. Uh, reminds people that we do have to get through some things. We do have to find better solutions. Some of our ideas that we've been in love with that we thought worked so well may not be great ideas, but when we can find the better solutions, we don't have to live in fear. We can live in a, in a higher peace and on a higher plane. And that's what my spirituality is today, finding out wh what peace means, how I can achieve it, uh, that I can't live a fully peaceful life. That's unrealistic too. We do have suffering as humans, but uh, unafraid, just, uh, I want to give people an ounce of courage to say, you know, take that leap, even if it's facing something you, you've been trying to ignore, you know, uh, so I, that's one of my favorites. I'm glad you latched down to that one. It's, it's uh, been a fun one for me. I like one of the things you say you live by now, feel it and heal it. In other words, don't try to push it aside. Don't try to deny those things, whatever lightness or darkness they bring and then heal it. But the process of, of um, working your way to a place where that's possible is, has, been, has been cool to, to hear you read about and, and, and talk about here. Yeah, we're not, you know, we men are not gifted, unfortunately, with feeling things and healing things. We don't want to even talk about them. And I think that's part of our unfortunate nature is compared to the uh, uh, females is that they're willing to talk, let's be honest. They, they can talk through some things and they can get things up. They're willing to feel it and talk about it. And we as men, and I talked to a lot of men's group, 
aren't quite wired that way. And so I think we have to work a little extra hard to say, gosh, Chris, what, what, what are your feelings now? And, you know, are you hurt? Are you uh, afraid? We don't want to do that, but we need to do that. And so the, the speeches I get up to, uh, to give or the, the, the moments I get with a microphone are to encourage a lot of the men, especially, come on, guys, we got to learn to talk. This is a skill we might have to learn late in, in life, but we do need to uh, grab hold of it. That's powerful. The, the course of your life, I don't know if you're a reflective person, but all the different chapters, all the different pieces of the tapestry that we all have are, is pretty remarkable. I, I would like to, to end with a funny story that you tell in the book. I mean, you, you talk about dur during those, those amazing years of, of uh, the, the rise of Hootie, you're, you're playing a gig while watching a U.S. soccer game against Columbia. Uh, you've got a monitor there. The Clintons are in the house. You're playing this gig while watching soccer. Well, that's a very fateful game that, that U.S. soccer fans might remember. We, we won the game over Columbia. It was an own goal by Andres Escobar, who ended up going back to Columbia and being murdered because of that. But this is the idea that, that and, and sports and music were always intertwined for you guys. You're, you're playing a gig, you're watching a soccer game, and then after that, years later, Alexi Lalas, who was part of that group, <laughs> ends up opening for your band in Europe. Yes, he's a pretty damn good musician, actually, as well as being a Fox broadcaster and, and, a, and an ex-soccer. And, and practical jokes are a part of the end of tour rituals, right, with the opening band and the, and the headliner. I've seen, I've seen a few of them unfold. Um, why it's, we don't have time to get into it, but Radiohead and REM play jokes on each other. So Alexi's band opens for you guys and then ends up pranking you pretty good. It's one of the better ones I've heard. Yeah, they really uh, thought it out. It took a little bit of work as well. Sometimes you don't have to uh, do much. It's just running on stage and uh, being <laughs> disturbing, but sometimes it includes outfits or uh, uh, bigger pranks that need some uh, thinking. And theirs was great because um, they wanted to come out and interrupt our song, which is a typical way to to uh, do it. But and so they do a little cute little dance that's during "Only Want to Be with You," and there's sort of two of them on either side of uh, Dean and Mark, and I'm back there laughing. Oh, they're doing cute. Now they're kind of stripping. They're stripping down. Oh, they're doing a little strip tease here, people. This is getting interesting. They're in their boxers and they're continuing to dance, and the crowd is now really drawn in they're like oh this this is going to be a good prank and as they do a sort of coordinated dance move they turn around with their backsides to the audience and drop trow and i can't see that they have written across all of their arses only wanna be with you in sharpie <laughs> it's one of those times where you're thankful to be uh not in the audience being the drummer uh, <laughs> And this uh, moment is even made better imagining later, which Alexi recounted to me when they realized, oh, we've written Sharpies on our asses. Now we have to get this <laughs> off. And that's what true friends and bandmates are for, ladies and gentlemen, is who is willing to scrub the title of a Hootie the Blowfish song off your bandmates' butt? Your life has been filled with the silliness and fun but also some seriousness and, and, and deep power. And, and thanks for, for bringing all of it, Sony, and, and delivering the message. And it, it's great to, great to see you in a great place. I'd love to see you actually in person and, and reconnect because um, we do share some common things, but, but you're out there doing some great, great stuff and inspiring people and delivering that message. So thanks for sharing it with me today. 
Thanks so much, y'all. I really enjoyed that conversation. You know, one of the joys of a podcast is besides getting to know new people, once in a while, if you're lucky, you can reconnect with a very old acquaintance. I know you know the feeling. Maybe you haven't talked to them in many years, but you just start talking and it clicks and it feels great. Please check out Sony's book, Swimming with the Blowfish, and his EP is called Remember Tomorrow. You can follow him on Instagram at SonyTime64. That's S-O-N-I Time 64. As always, grateful to my co-executive producer, Jennifer Dempster, and to the folks at Octagon. I'll talk to you soon.